We'll be back in John chapter 6 tonight. We left off in verse 63, talking about, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. You know, let me just say this before we read this. We'd mention it briefly um, tonight already, but we are in a world that is broken. We are in a world that is in need of a Savior. That's just, that is the reality that it is. And when we go out into the world and we witness and we, we go and we try to communicate with those who are around us at our jobs and wherever we're at in our families, they don't need good advice from us. That's not what's going to bring the change in their life. They don't need our own personal opinion on something. They don't need an anecdote that we have heard a long time ago. We don't need uh, clever, uh, clever sayings. We don't need any of that stuff. Do you know what people need to hear? The words of God. Because it is only in those words that are spirit and life. That is the only thing that will bring about the necessary result. It's the power of God unto salvation. It is the words that are accompanied by the Spirit. We know that the Word of God is, it's, it, it carried men along, the Holy Spirit did, to record these words, and, and it is life and truth that we find in here. And when we start to read these verses again tonight, know that. Know that these words that you are going to hear, they are not just regular words. They are alive. They are not dead words. They are words that are alive. They bring life. And as we begin to read these tonight, I hope that as we read, that our hearts come alive to the things of God and we see that there's power, truth, and beauty in what we're going to read tonight. We ask this today. Do you love the Word of God? Well, we're getting ready to hear it. You're getting ready. We're going to read along. We're going to hear the words of God tonight and let us come to these words with reverence and awe and respect and know that there's power and life in these words. So... I'm going to go back to verse 59, and then I'm going to read all the way down to 65, and we will put it into context, and we will go from there. Here's what it says, verse 59 of John chapter 6. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they had heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. This is what we'll pick up. We didn't read these this morning. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. What powerful words we hear out of the lips of Christ tonight. And before we expound on these, let's take a moment to pray. What do you say? Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to allow us to come back tonight and together 
with one focus, one desire, and that is to worship You, to honor You, to glorify You, Father, and to learn more about You. Lord, let us understand the privilege and the, and the great honor that we've just had by hearing Your words, hearing the words that are from the living God. And I pray, Father, that You would guide us tonight. You would open our hearts and our eyes and our minds, Lord, to see these verses in truth. And let us, Lord, have our hearts come alive like they never have before to the things of You. Lord, we thank You for what You are showing in these verses. Lord, let us for a moment tonight just understand that we are completely dependent upon You. And Lord, let us understand that it is by Your sovereign hand of mercy that we are saved and we are Christians. So Father, help us tonight. And guide us in all truth, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, this goes back. This has kind of been a theme that has gone through this chapter. And what I want to just, before we dive into it anymore, I just want to show you the consistency of this chapter. Again, this is personal to me, and I have a, um, I have a personal attachment, if you will, to consistency of Scripture. Can I say that? And many of you know this story, but as I was coming um, and God was showing me the, the truths of Reformed theology, that uh, one of the individuals, uh, James White, listening to him, the thing that he kept saying is, which view allows you to be the most consistent? Which view can you just walk through text after text and start to finish? And what is the most consistent? I thought he was crazy at first until I started listening to him. And then I, I would get caught up in all these, these areas where I didn't have an answer, and it contradicted this, and it contradicted that. And then as you begin to see that the doctrines of grace and what Reformed theology holds to, it is absolutely the most consistent thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And I want you to see that. I want you to see the consistency of what is happening in chapter 6, especially starting in verse 36. Remember what verse 36 starts out saying, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. That's where this whole thing, this section of Scripture started, where he's explaining all that come to him. And we see similar language tonight in verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. So there is a group of people who do not believe. There's a group of people who have heard the same things that we have heard, have seen the same things that we've seen on the surface, but they do not believe. And then as he begins to walk through this chapter, starting in verse 37, he says that those who do believe are who? They are the ones that the Father gives to the Son. This is the doctrine of election. Again, this is seemed, it's going to be a little bit of a review, but we have to get this. It is the doctrine of election and predestination right there. The Father gives to the Son. You do not give yourself before the foundation of the world. He gives you. The, fa the Father is the one who elects. He chooses. That is where it starts. The Father is the head of this process. It initiates in Him. It initiates with Him. And we're going to find that all that the Father gives to Him is going to be this consistent group of people that is being discussed in this chapter. The elect, the chosen, you're going to see that. And we know this for a fact, that all the Father gives, they come. 
That is a certainty. There will not be one person that the Father gives to the Son that is not in heaven. It is absolutely certain. All that the Father gives, they come. Take it to the bank. It is a certainty. He does not cast those out. Why? Because those are the ones the Father has given him. Those are the ones that he draws. Those are the ones that are born again. Those are his. And then what else do we do? We see of this group. All that the Father gives, they come. And what also is the result of this coming? The promise of eternal life. It's a guarantee. It's the same group. Those the Father give, they're the ones who come. They're the ones who the Father does not cast out, but receives because they're His. They are the ones who are raised up on the last day. They are the ones who believe. It's consistent. It's the same group as you walk through this chapter. They are the ones who the Father draws. Again, we, we have this misconception through churches today that He everybody's drawn the same. He draws everyone the same. Now you come in your, your unregenerate state and, and you may have a little bit left like we talked about today. Maybe there's just a little something in you that can choose the things of God and he's drawing everyone the same and now it's just up to you. Come and respond to these spiritual things in your unregenerate state. That's what many believe. And they say, well, he draws everyone the same, but he doesn't because what is the result of the drawing? They come. And those that he draws, he raises up on the last day. So he can't draw everyone the same unless we say what? We believe in universalism. It's consistent. And we're just walking through this chapter. That's the same thing we get into with the golden chain. There's so many people that say he calls everyone the same. Can't be. That cannot be. Those whom he calls, he justifies. Justification means you're right in the sight of God. And those he justifies, he glorifies. That, again, leads us to universalism. That cannot be. You know, there's an interesting passage that we find in Revelation chapter 17, verses 14. It says, those who are with him in heaven are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. What a beautiful text. If he calls everyone the same, everybody's in heaven. And then we learn today who eats of the flesh of the Son of Man and who drinks His blood. It's the same ones that we've started with. Those whom the Father gives because what is the result of eating the flesh and drinking the blood? They're raised up on the last day. It's consistent all through this chapter. But there are some who do not believe this. There are some that struggle with this in this group here, this text. And they're grumbling, they're complaining, they don't believe he's the Son of Man, they don't believe he came down from heaven, so they're definitely not going to believe he's going to rise back to the Ancient of Days. They don't believe. And then he goes into verse 63, which is where we left off today, where he says, listen, you can't bring yourself to life. You cannot bring yourself to the things of God. It requires something outside of you. It requires the Spirit. Remember what Luther said to Erasmus? That, little, that nothing is not a little something. You have no ability in your fallen flesh. It is the Spirit who gives life spiritually. And he says, these are the words that I've spoken to you, their spirit and their life. 
And then we come to verse 64. Remind yourself of what we just talked about. It is consistent. It's the same group. And now we're going to come to verse 64 and 65. And we're going to see again what group believes. What is required to believe. There's a necessary condition. Again, if you go through chapter 6 and you look for the word unless, you're going to find multiple instances here. Those are necessary conditions. And what you will find is the necessary condition is brought about by the sovereign hand of God. He's the one who brings these conditions to be met or we would not be able to do so. So what does he say here? He says in verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. How could he do that? How could Jesus know who wouldn't believe? Well, number one, he's omniscient. He knows all things. But he also knew who the Father has given to him. He knows that. God knows all things. He knows who are his. He knows whom he came to die for. He knows who will be with him in heaven. He knew this from the beginning. And he knows this from the beginning because that is where election starts before the world was. That God sovereignly shows mercy on some and just lets the others have perfect justice. Let's them do and be what their evil heart wants. It's either mercy or justice, but never injustice. And he says that he knows from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. We're going to come up a little later into John chapter 13, and we're going to, we're going to hear a story of someone who's going to betray Christ, Judas. And you want the quintessential professor of faith, but not possessor of faith, you find it in Judas. Judas is the prime example that you can be in church all your life and not be given by the Father to the Son. You can, be, you can have a position in a church and not be a born-again person. And Christ knows this. Actually, we know that I think it's in Psalm 41, verse 9, that it is prophesied that this would happen, that, that he would betray him. Again, if Judas could have changed his mind, we've got a real problem because then we can't take any prophecy in the Old Testament seriously because how could he prophesy that something was going to happen and then Judas get down to that moment and be like, you know, I've changed my mind. Could have done it. It was in the sovereign decreed plan of God. That's how he could prophesy that that betrayal was going to happen all the way back in the book of Psalms before the Last Supper. We were talking about this after church today. Jesus tells them, he's going to tell them in John 13, and we'll eventually get there. I don't want to get too much because I want you to come back when we talk, when we're in John 13. But he, he tells them that, that there's going to be one who betrays me. And then he makes this statement, another I am statement. Jesus says, from now on, I'm going to tell you ahead of time what is going to take place. So that when it does take place, you will believe that ego I me. What a statement. I'm going to start telling you everything that's going to happen in advance. So when it does come to pass, guess what? You'll know that I am. Because that's the God that we serve, the great I am, Yahweh. And we were talking about it. What I was going to say is we were talking about it after church, about how when Jesus says there's going to be one of you here that betray me, no one around that table took their finger all in one unison and be like, it's that guy. 
I just randomly pointed. Sorry. <laughs> that guy. The other disciples didn't say, I knew it was going to be Judas, did they? What did they say? Is it me? Is it me? Why? Because Judas looked apart. Judas was so well trusted that he was given charge of the money. Judas walked beside Christ, saw miracles. He played the part to perfection, but he was predestined to eternal damnation before the world was. The son of perdition, all to the glory of God. There's some, I think if I'm remembering this correctly, that when they would sit by each other in those meals, that there was a right-hand man, and that's where John the Apostle sat. He was the one who Jesus, that leaned upon Jesus on his right side. And it, that's a great position. But if I believe, if I'm saying this correctly, that the seat of honor was actually reserved to the one on the left. And you see what is being said there, that it would be Judas ordained from the foundation of the world to betray Christ, then what would that betrayal set in motion? The events that would put the Son of Man on the cross, which would bring eternal redemption for those whom the Father had given to the Son. I believe actually in John 13, after Judas betrays him, he says, now the Son of Man is glorified because it is in that betrayal that has been decreed that will bring about the greatest good that could ever come to a fallen world. Judas meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, to the saving of many lives. He knew that Judas would betray him. He knew that all who believe, he knows everyone that will believe. And then he comes to verse 65 and he tells us who will believe and why they can believe. Here's what he says in verse 65. And he was saying, for this reason, for what he's just said, for the reason that there's some who don't believe and he knows who won't believe, for this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless. You know, we, we hear the word whosoever all the time, don't we? I mentioned this last week. There are people that hold doctrines based on that word that wasn't even in the original Greek. I'm a whosoever. I'm a whosoever. Well, if you're an elect, you are a whosoever because you've called on his name. But do you know what we never say that we are the no ones? Because you're in that group. You and I were not special. You and I were not outside of this specific group here because it is involving everyone. No one can come to Christ unless... You can't do it in your flesh. You can't do it on your own. There's a necessary condition that has to be met before you come to Christ. What you see here is a sovereign hand of God in salvation. Did you ever come to Christ? I hope the answer is yes to everyone here. But do you realize that not only are you a whosoever if you've believed, but you are also a no one who could not come to him unless this necessary condition was met. What hopelessness we have. What dependency we have on God. 
This is what this is driving us to. This is why the doctrines of grace are so beautiful once you begin to have an understanding of them because it takes you and puts you in your rightful place as one who deserves nothing and the only way you have anything, including eternal life, is that a sovereign, merciful God before the world was shined down His mercy and grace upon you for nothing except for His own intention of His own will to the glory of His wonderful grace. There was a moment that you came and professed faith in Christ. But know this, that wasn't because of how special you were, how smart you were, how many services you've heard. The reason that you came to do that is because of the necessary condition that you and I are getting ready to hear. All the glory to God. All the praise to God. And if you are a believer, something had to happen first before you to come and to believe in Him. What does it say? No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. Where did, you, where did this start? Remember verse 37? All that the Father gives, they come. All that the Father draws, they come. All that the Father gives, they eat of the Son of Man and they drink of His blood. They're raised on the last day. It's consistently working through this group of people. The one He draws is the same one He grants this privilege to. You cannot come. I cannot come. No one can come unless it has been granted from the Father. It is that action that has to occur from the Father for us to be able to come. That's sovereignty at its highest. That is power and that is his of his own will that is up to him he has that right to allow and grant anyone he wants to come and he's not required to grant it to anyone so often we say well how could he not die for everyone how could he not love everyone how could he not put bring everybody to heaven do you know who says that someone who doesn't know who god is and they don't know how fallen we are Because none of us deserve to be in the presence of a holy God for all eternity. None of us have done anything to merit salvation. I heard it said one time that earth's cry is, how could you not save us all? And heaven's cry, angels cry, how could you save just one of them? It starts with the Father. All things are from Him including your election, including His sovereign choice upon those who are truly undeserving. But no one can come unless it has been granted Him from the Father. Let's look at some of these verses that show what this granting looks like. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, it says this, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Do you see what he's mentioning there in that verse? (laughs) Christ is the one who grants this, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. He grants you that ability. He grants you that faith to believe. And what comes along with that belief? All that live godly lives will suffer persecution. It is for this that you've been called. It's been granted from our heavenly God to believe. Timothy chapter 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, it says this, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, 
not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Not according to your works. Not according to anything, but his own purpose. Do you remember in Romans 9 where it says that he chose Jacob and not Esau? Why? For God's sovereign purpose in election, that it would stand. And here we have this, that we have been granted this grace and this mercy in Christ Jesus. You remember what we talked about today? We are in union with Christ. It is in Him, and we have this mercy because of this union with Him. And where has it been from? At the moment you called out to Him on an altar in your home, wherever it was at, is that where it started? It says, from all eternity. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4 through 4 says this, Seeing that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. It's a granting these promises, these truths are granted to the elect to, to be a partaker of the divine nature as we are born again and we're seated up with Him in heavenly places. And then we come to a set of wonderful verses. I know you can't underline the whole Bible. Let me say this. Can I just have a moment of just reminiscing and a little lightheartedness if I can? I've sat behind some people in church that just the whole pages are yellow. <laughs> I mean, like, it's like, start highlighting, and then before you know it, every verse on the left and every verse on the right is highlighted. And I'm like, that's an exception to the rule, man. There must be some great verses in there. And then they'll turn the page and be like, well, all of these pages are highlighted too. It's like... Let's just underline the whole Bible. I know we can't do that, but in a sense we should, right? They're all that important, but some stick out to us a little bit more than others for certain reasons. But if you're a highlighter, if you're an underliner, if you're a writer in your Bible, I would suggest you make mark of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. Because there's great truths in these verses. says this, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient with wrong, when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Youch. Does that get anybody else? Anybody else feel that? Need to repent of that? Sometimes we get carried away in our feelings. But you want to lose a witness really quick. You become quarrelsome. You become irate. You become not patient. And it doesn't matter what you say. They're going to check out on you more than likely. Remember that we are representatives of Christ. And we are to act like He has shown us the way. But look what he's saying. When we go to witness to people, 
we are to be kind, not quarrelsome, able to teach, patient with wrong, in gentleness, correcting those in opposition. Now, look at the next few words. If perhaps God may grant them repentance. If perhaps He grants them repentance. God is the one who grants repentance. And if you've come and you've repented of sin, and you've been broken over sin, you've been poor in spirit, know that it is a merciful, sovereign act that the Holy God has placed upon you. And we know that there are two kinds of repentance. We see this. There's a worldly repentance that we know as attrition. And there's a godly repentance that we know as contrition. And we find it, I believe it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, that we see this worldly repentance. And this worldly repentance, the best way that we always describe it, and you've heard this in example, but the repentance of attrition is like the kid who sees the cookies on the island. And the parents tell him, do not touch the cookies. Do not get in the cookie jar. And it won't be long when the kid thinks that no one's looking. What happens? They are elbow deep in the cookie jar. They get caught. And what's the first thing out of their mouth typically? An excuse, a justification why, and then a, oh, I'm sorry, please, 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 please. Here comes the punishment. Oh, please, 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 I'm sorry. I don't know if you're truly sorry. You're sorry because you got caught. But you're not sorry for what you've done. That's worldly repentance. The book of Hebrews tells us that Esau, after he did what he did, he sought this with tears. You can cry your eyes out on an altar because you're afraid of the punishment that may come. But that's not true repentance. That's attrition. I don't want to go to hell, so please forgive me. I'm sorry. And there's a lot of people who've been tricked and deceived and manipulated in an altar call to come and have that kind of repentance because they do not want to go to hell. We've all heard this. If you come down to this altar... And you repeat this prayer, then you don't have to go to hell. Really? That's all I got to do? They will come down, say some words. They'll be told they're part of the kingdom of God. And their heart has never been truly changed. And the only reason they were sorrowful because they didn't want to go to hell not sorrowful that they have sinned and lived a life of ungodliness and offended the holy living God of this universe. That's what contrition is. You see that in Psalm 51 when David is pouring out his heart for his sin. And what does he say? He says, my sin is ever before you and whatever punishment you bring, you are just. Whatever it costs me, that's okay. I'm just sorry that I've sinned against you. 
I'm broken because I've sinned against you, the holy God. And whatever the punishment is, that's what I deserve. Just please forgive me. I repent. There's two repentances here. And for one to come and truly show that repentance, that contrition, it has to be granted by the Father. Who comes and shows that repentance? It's the same consistency that we've seen all through this chapter. It's the ones who are the Father gives. It's the ones whom are drawn. It's the ones who eat of the flesh. They are appointed to eternal life. It is the same group of people that will have this mercy and repentance granted to them. Again, do you see the sovereign hand of God upon your life? If you're a Christian, why are you a Christian? All the glory to him. Look what he goes on to say. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. What you've just heard is what Luther would have called the bondage of the will. We believe that you have free will, but that free will is not neutral. You do not come out into this world choosing the things of God. Your will is enslaved to the devil. You are in captivity to the devil. You are hostile to God. You don't seek God. And in your fallen state, in that free will, you will run as far away and as fast as you can away from the things of God. Your free will is not neutral. It is inclined to sin. It is inclined to the things of the devil. And unless God comes and sets you free from that captivity and changes the, the or dispensation of your mind, the inclination of your wills, you have no hope. You're enslaved, and we hear this. If He grants us repentance, then we can be set free from being held captive by the devil. Every person in their fallen state is held in captivity to Satan. And that is what their free will wants. It's in bondage to sin. It's in bondage to corruption. It has no hope. And so many people will get on their soapbox and say, yes, we have free will. Yes, you do. But do not rejoice in that free will because that free will, unless it has been changed by a sovereign God, will take you straight to hell. That will has to be changed. You have to be set free from doing the will of the devil. You have to be set free from that. And that is only accomplished by what? A sovereign hand of God. Having been held captive by Him to do His will. This is who believes. This is who comes to Him. This is how we come to Him. You know what you won't find in John chapter 6? There's a little bit of something in me. You won't find that, will you? You won't. You won't find that it is your outstanding decision-making skills that has brought you into this eternal life. You won't find that in there either. Do you know what you find 
in John chapter 6? A fallen creature that has no hope outside of God. That's what you find. Just think about this. Why did you come to him? Why? Because you were given by the Father to the Son. That's why you came. Why can you lay your head on your pillow tonight if you're a Christian and know that one day you will be raised with him? Because all that the Father gives, they come and he raises them on the last day. Why did you come? Because at one point, the Father drew you. You learned from Him. He taught you. You heard His call. It was effectual. That's why we believe in an effectual call. Because all those are taught and hear from Him, what do they do? They come to Him. It's not a possibility. It's a reality. They come. My sheep hear my voice. They come. I lose none of them. When you start to read this, don't you see God just going higher and higher and higher and higher and higher? And your ability and your boasting continues to go lower and lower and lower. That's what the gospel is supposed to do for you. It's not to make you arrogant. It's not to make you boastful. It is to make you in absolute reverence and awe of a holy God's sovereign hand upon you to do the impossible that you could not do on your own. It's almost like he is a savior, right? He saved you. Not of ourselves, but all the glory to him. Why did you come and believe in his work? Why did you come and feast upon him? Because you were given. You realize if he wouldn't have drawn you, that's the necessary condition, you'd never come. And you realize if it would not have been granted you, by the Father, you would have never come. And listen to this and listen to it carefully. He would have been perfectly just to not draw anyone here tonight. You understand that? He didn't have to. There's nothing we brought to him that he would owe us anything. There's nothing we've given to him that he would repay us. If he drew you, know this, he did not have to. If he granted you repentance and the ability to come to the Son, recognize this, he did not have to. And if you're a Christian, he wasn't under any obligation to give you to the Son. But he did. He did. All to the glory of his wonderful grace. I hope you see what's going on in John 6. Why some believe, why some don't. And those who believe, we better never for one second be arrogant or boastful. 
Because all these necessary conditions are from God. Those who are predestined, called, justified, drawn by the Father, granted the ability to come to the Son, appointed to have eternal life, those who are born again, those who come to Christ, those who believe in Christ, those who are raised on the last day, those who are glorified are all the same group, and those are the ones whom the Father has given to the Son. And we are absolutely hopeless. This is what we've been talking about, to come to Him, believe in Him, to be born again on our own as our flesh counts for nothing, profits nothing. And I want you to hear this, to believe that there's still a little something in us that we can come in our unregenerate state and, and believe and bring about this regeneration, to believe there's just a little something in us. You know what that does? It reduces the awe that should be accompanied with the thought of a sovereign God and His sovereign hand upon us. It loses all. It loses the, the majestic, amazing work that is found in God alone. This should put us in absolute awe that a holy God would do this on fallen rebel creatures that He didn't have to do. He is required to do nothing. He owes us nothing. He needs nothing. And to think that somehow we try to stick ourselves right in it. Somehow we can be the ones who really bring about this. Is to reduce the awe of our salvation that is brought about by the Holy God. And I can attest to this. I can attest to this. I sat in church like I told you for so many years. And only until recently have I truly understood the all that should be accompanied with salvation. Believing what I believed before, it cheapened it all. And didn't even know it. I didn't even know I was cheapening it. But then you see it to it be God alone be the glory. And you understand that you have made it cheap. And when you understand that it is God working in us in salvation, it leaves us in awe in reverence of Him. The more you know how unable you are to come to Him outside of Him, is to then give Him the glory that is due Him. I heard one time, if I can get it right, he said, it said that God saves us from Himself, through Himself, by Himself, and unto Himself. And when we understand how hopeless we are, then that will hopefully allow us to give the glory to whom it is credited and to whom it's due. And I want you to end with these questions and I want you to think about it and what it, what it means. I just want to ask some questions and you can ask, answer them in your mind. Why are you born again? Why? Did you come and your faith then bring about regeneration? Or did your regeneration bring about faith? 
Why are you born again? Were you born from above? Were you born from your own flesh or were you born by the Spirit? Why are you born again? And why did you come to Him? Why do you believe? Tonight, if you believe these truths, why do you believe God in the gospel? And why will you be raised on the last day if you believe that? Why? And why will you glory in God and enjoy Him forever? Do you know the answer to all these questions? God. That's the answer to all the questions. Why do you believe? God. Why are you born again? God. Why are you a Christian? The answer is God. Then there's only one response that we have if the answer to all these things is God. And God alone. And I think we could say it like this. To God alone be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how could we say thank you enough? But sadly, so often, that's not the problem that we have. So often we have trouble just saying thank you at all. And Father, I pray that through the working of these verses and through the power of the Holy Spirit upon our souls to hear the truths that we heard tonight, that our thanks would increase. Our reverence for you would increase. Our love for you would increase. Lord, our awe for you would increase. Lord, it starts with you. It ends with you. It is through you. Lord, it is you that deserves all the glory, all the credit. And anyone that believes, Lord, and puts faith in you and responds to the gospel, that is only because you have enabled us to do that. Thank you. Thank you, Father. And Lord, as we begin to just reflect and ponder these verses, let us understand that our salvation is not cheap. It is expansive that began in eternity past and will carry on through eternity future. And it is all a result of you. That you are sovereign in all things. And Father, let us never forget this. Let us for never forget that we are dependent upon you. And without you bringing these necessary conditions, we have no hope. And Lord, I pray that that would keep us humble. We would never boast, but Lord, we would be in amazement of what you've done for us. Because without it, in your work, it is impossible for us to achieve. Thank you for this wonderful day. Lord, we praise you and we thank you and we give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.